Hello, and welcome to episode 81 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com. This is the 40th and probably the final installment for 2019, so I want to take this opportunity to thank all of my listeners and guests and co-hosts from throughout the year for joining me to talk tennis and tennis analytics this year. To wrap up this season of podcasting, I have a, a special guest with me for episode 81, and it is Joshua Robinson. He is a European sports reporter for the Wall Street Journal and co-author with Jonathan Clegg of the book The Club, How the English Premier League Became the Wildest, Richest, Most Disruptive Force in Sports. It came out about a year ago, and I think I, I bought it the day after it came out and finished it the day after that. I absolutely love this book, and fortunately, it has some tangential connections to some of the stuff we're talking about today. So I think we'll get to touch on that a little bit. I know there's, uh, even though I'm not a football slash soccer fan myself, I know there's lots of serious football fans among my listeners. So hopefully we'll get to that. The reason that I wanted to talk to Josh this week is that he was just in Saudi Arabia to cover the big boxing match at the Diria Arena, and that's directly related to tennis. We've got the Diria Cup in Saudi Arabia um, this this weekend with eight top players, a prize pot of $3 million. It's a quote-unquote historic event, the first professional tennis event in Saudi Arabia, uh, and obviously there's lots of money, lots of top players, including Stan Wawrink and Daniel Medvedev. So Josh, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And Josh, you were just in Saudi Arabia for this big boxing title fight. I know you've covered um, big events of similar stature or even greater stature around the world. How does this sort of event in Saudi Arabia, which is I mean, a pretty new thing for the country, compare to the same sort of event in countries like the US or UK or France where you're based um, that have more of a track record, more fans, more experience hosting stuff like this? Well, boxing in the desert is nothing new. We have that all the time in Vegas. But this desert is uh, pretty pretty different and, and certainly made for one of the more bizarre sporting events I ever covered because you can't really escape the fact that you're in a place that that isn't used to hosting major events. And, and you have to keep reminding yourself that why of, of why they're doing this. Um, and so I found myself sitting ringside um, outside in this temporary arena that went that started uh, going up in early October they, you know they produced this almost out of thin air in the space of nine weeks um, and bizarrely it also started raining for a while in the <laughs> desert which I wasn't expecting um, and they weren't prepared for because they didn't have a roof um, but you really can't ignore the fact that on a private terrace behind you is Mo is the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman one of the most powerful people on the planet, um, and that this whole thing is is really an ad for his country. Um, in it was very strange, uh, and certainly, unfortunately, probably closer to a lot of sporting events I've covered in recent years. Because this, you know, countries with a lot of money trying to improve their images are the people who can afford to host sporting events these days. Yeah, you you managed to to uh, give a preview of about five of my questions all in one answer. So that's pretty impressive. Um, yeah, Amnesty International calls this sports washing, this business of advertising your country via sporting events. And as you say, it's becoming uh, becoming a bigger trend. 
Um, was it obviously you're aware of it because you know, you're writing for a publication that wants more than just a blow by blow account of the match. This is going to be an angle that that you'd be expected to cover. I mean, is this is this evident for for a fan who's going to watch a boxing match or a, a tennis event in in a Saudi Arabian arena? Um, well, that's the the biggest thing that a fan would have missed is the opportunity to maybe have a beer uh, on their way in. <laughs> Um, because Saudi Arabia, more strictly than any other place in the Gulf, uh, enforces its uh, its laws against alcohol. Um, you know, whereas in Qatar, for instance, you can go to any one of six or eight Western hotels and uh, and buy a drink and pay fifteen dollars for your pint. Um, you know, with the the hundred percent syntax. Um, you really can't do that in Saudi. So that I mean, that was that would have been a different experience for a lot of fans. And and there were British fans who came in, a lot of expats, um, quite a few from from Britain as well, because I flew in from London and that BA flight did have fans. Um, but other than that, you can kind of see why uh, Saudi Arabia and other countries like it put on these events, because once you're there, it's it's easy to forget, um, and you can you can you can see what how it's quite seductive to someone who doesn't have. Uh, any other who, who's taking it on a very literal degree um, you know the luxury in some of these places is impressive a lot of things work pretty smoothly uh, you can get around the same way you would in any Western country there's uber there's other apps like it um, and you know the sporting event is right there and tickets are available they were still selling tickets days before the fight which is something that you can't really do if this fight is at Madison Square Garden or in Vegas yeah, I feel like it's kind of like the New York fans who fly around the country to watch football games because you can actually afford tickets. So if you're a if you're a British fan, maybe it's more feasible to go to a fight like this in in Riyadh than it is in in London. Um, I mean, was there much of a local crowd? Did you get a sense of that? Yeah, there was a heavy local contingent, but I really couldn't tell very much about them um, in terms of whether they were longtime boxing fans or guests of the event uh, that was hard to say and what about the the accommodations not literally but the the way they handle journalists I mean I'm assuming you get to have press conferences with with the with the fighters but I mean did you have much of an opportunity to, to probe into the into the backstory in the uh, with the organizers and I mean I guess you can't really bring up the human rights issues but just some of the Saudi weirdness. Um, get a chance to talk to people about that. Um, they put some Saudi officials front and center saying, listen, we know we have problems, but the, often the tactic is to say no country is perfect. And that sort of, in their eyes, equalizes uh, the various degrees of what may or may not be going on in the country. You know, this is still a country where, despite all the social changes, and they're happening at a dizzying pace over the past three years, um, you know, women can now drive. You see a lot of women walking around not fully covered. Um, even the week I was there, they changed a law that said you had to have separate entrances in restaurants for single men and families, which is basically anyone accompanied by a woman. Um, and people there told me that all of this would have been unthinkable three years ago. But for all the social change, journalists working in the in the area have said that it's also more politically repressive, that it's more difficult to gain access to any sort of real information on an official level. 
um, and that they feel like they're being monitored more closely. So there, there are these two sides to it um, that, that make it quite a, a tricky thing to cover. But to, to answer your question, yeah, people were, were prepared to answer for the human rights questions and they all put their different spin on it. And from the, I found the most kind of refreshing one coming from uh, the fight promoters who said, we know there are problems here, but the money is here. And who, who are we to tell these fighters in this brutal sport that they can't secure their futures uh, by cashing in on a mega fight like this? And while I appreciate the honesty, I feel like there's some, a little bit of bad faith there because, the, you know, if this fight had been at Madison Square Garden or in Vegas or at Wembley Stadium, it's not like they were fighting for free. Yeah, and and as as you get into talking about Man City in your book, like the the money doesn't have to stay in the Gulf. Or Emirates has been sponsoring stuff for decades now, and and the and, and Dubai and Abu Dhabi more directly have been spending that money. So there's lots of ways for that money to find its way into the pockets of athletes. Um, so I I noticed in in your article about about the fight like the 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 two boxers didn't seem too concerned about the implications of of fighting in Saudi Arabia they were pretty much chasing the money but there are some instances where there are athletes who are, who are opting not to go so uh, there's a big golf event coming up and Rory McElroy has has said he's not going Tiger Woods isn't going uh, there was an attempt to hold a tennis exhibition a year ago um, Federer said no. Nadal and Djokovic were scheduled to play, but then it didn't end up happening. I mean, Nadal said he was injured, which is always a plausible excuse, but it might have been that they wanted to avoid the controversy. So most most athletes are, are taking the money. Some aren't. How how big of a factor do you think the potential reputational damage is for for these big name athletes who are associating themselves with with a human rights abuser? It's interesting. Um, the I think there's a probably high reputational cost for the early ones to go, but like all of these, uh, it becomes normalized. You know, the who we still think of, of Qatar, for instance, as a human rights abuser, but do we think of individual clubs uh, or national teams going over there as complicit anymore? I'm not sure. Um, you know, this week. This coming week uh, is the Club World Cup in, in Doha, and I'll be going as well. And Liverpool is playing there because they won the Champions League. So each continental representative uh, gets to go. And I don't think... And Liverpool, you know, has said a lot of the right things. They uh, There were reports that they even moved hotels because the one they were assigned had been built by uh, migrant labor that was exploited. Um, so they say a lot of the right things. They go and they say, we don't, we don't make the competitions. We just have to show up and win. Um, and I think that's one way to play it. Um, whereas, so to minimize the reputational damage. I think for guys like uh, Roger and Rafa and Novak, uh, there might be some in situations where it's like a, a staged exhibition or indeed a prize fight. But the, the promoters were very realistic about it as well for this fight, saying... We do this, we take, we're prepared to take the flack, but if it goes well, we're going to be back and people are going to care less and less where this fight is. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good point that 
even even the difference in the coverage of Saudi Arabia tennis since last year is is really really stark because looking back at what people were saying when the Djokovic Nadal match was canceled last year there there were tennis writers who were saying they shouldn't go uh, reading about the Diria Cup this year I mean there's some people including myself who are snarking about it on Twitter but uh, but for the most part it's people are buying the PR or they're just ignoring it because it's December but it's it. it Maybe it's already normalized. Maybe it'd be a bigger story if Federer were playing, but but it does get normalized very quickly. And that's I'm interested in this difference between the exhibitions and uh, I mean it depends on the sport what we want to call it, but sort of authorized tournaments or, or part of a tour. Like we've had tournaments in Doha and Dubai on on both tennis circuits for almost a couple decades now. Um, it, the the club championship you're headed to next week is it's it's part of an existing structure in the sport. And is that the ultimate goal of, of the Petro states who are doing sports washing? Are they trying to like integrate themselves into the global sports networks or sports economy? Absolutely. They've all seen it as a real opportunity and despite the money involved, quite a cheap way to uh, tack on their brands to existing mega brands, uh, whether that's you know, the English Premier League, whether that's Liverpool Football Club or the World Cup, whether that's Roger Federer, uh, you know, if they can ever get him to go there. Um, or And, you know, they already do with certain tournaments in the Gulf. So it's, it's one of those where they have enough money to keep trying um, and getting into as many different sports as possible. Golf, tennis have, have been there, as you say, for a long time. Uh, Formula One, a sport that will take anyone's dollar, uh, has been in Bahrain for a while and Abu Dhabi for over a decade. Um, the you know football is increasingly in the region, and you know now we're seeing Saudi get involved, maybe ten or fifteen years behind the rest of the Gulf because it was so closed off in many ways. And uh, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has. Uh, seen this opportunity as he tries to rebrand the country and open it up um, to tack, himself, tack the country uh, onto sports. And it's, it's an explicit part of what's called the Vision 2030 plan, um, which is his sort of global development plan, um, to use sports in that way. Um, and it was true of Abu Dhabi a decade ago when they first bought into Man City. And when you think about it, Abu Dhabi bought Man City for under half a billion dollars. Overall, um, that's not a lot to pay for suddenly having access to the reach of the Premier League, which is broadcast in 185 countries every weekend, and suddenly everyone knows uh, your team. Not just that, but they have Etihad on the jersey and on the stadium, Etihad being the royal family-owned national carrier of, uh, uh, national airway of Abu Dhabi. Um, so it's, it becomes such an effective conduit because you're not just buying the image, you're also buying the reach. Yeah, it's, it's interesting the, the scale of the, the dollars we're talking about here. You, you said it's, it's relatively cheap to buy all this stuff for, for half a billion pounds into Man City. And I was just looking at a, an article recently that, that said that they've poured 1.3 billion pounds into Man City over the, over the period of their ownership. So I mean, we're... T 
this sounds like real money to me. <laughs> I mean, maybe I, maybe I don't, I don't. <laughs> it's funny in, in covering this stuff, I've had to readjust my, uh, my scales because 1.3 billion is, is a huge amount of money. But for instance, you go to Doha and you see the money they're sinking into the, the global, the whole world cup project. And that for the country is a $220 billion project. Um, not just the stadiums, but also, I mean, the entire road network seems like it's being redrawn and updated. Buildings are shooting up left and right. Um, and it's gonna be the most expensively produced sporting event in the history of sports. And the previous one was only eight years before the 2022 World Cup, and it was the Sochi Olympics. And that was $50 billion, which again, was another instance of uh, Russia trying to sell itself to the world through sports. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you mentioned Russia here because you said earlier that the the Saudi officials who are willing to to, to say something about the human rights issue they they'll say that it's every country has their problems and you know we all like to think there's a there there's a, a certain part of the world that isn't as bad or you don't need to, you don't need to worry about in the same way but a huge amount of the whole sporting calendar takes place in Russia in China. Uh, in, in in tennis, especially these days, China is just is just gobbling a bigger and bigger part of the calendar, and we wouldn't make the same complaints about China that we would about Saudi Arabia. But I mean, we have we can have some pretty serious issues with China, as have come up with some of the issues with Hong Kong and and in conflict with NBA, the NBA and NBA players recently. I mean, is it? It, do you think there's some validity to making to making this sort of comment to saying you know you guys are are investing a quarter of your season in China China is repressing an ethnic minority I mean is there much of a difference between this level of investment engagement with China and the same sort of thing with Saudi Arabia great point and that's often kind of the maybe the most valid pushback there is uh, from countries in the Gulf who feel uh, unduly targeted by criticism, um, and and I'm saying that's how they view it. Not that's not a personal view, perhaps. But uh, the the argument often goes: Listen, one, on one hand, these sports are global sports, and to say that they shouldn't go everywhere in the world, and that they should stay in North America and Europe, is um, a, a sort of regressive, even colonial view in in their arguments, um, and there there is a point there. You know, Sepp Blatter, uh, flawed as he was as president of FIFA, understood very early on that you could curry a lot of favor in a lot of countries by bringing football there, and you know he did a lot to grow the games uh, to, to grow the game outside of the the traditional heartlands of Europe and South America. Um, and in a lot of countries, for instance, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, where he was extremely popular, Blatter was not just viewed as a football administra administrator, he was viewed as a humanitarian. Um, so there is, there is some validity to uh, this, this perhaps more democratic approach to sport, taking it around the world. You have this reach. Let's, let's bring it to, to fans everywhere. And... In Saudi Arabia, you know, which is a country of 30 million people, there is a genuine sports fan base, perhaps not as true in Qatar, where there are only 800,000 citizens. Um, you know, that's basically taking uh, the World Cup to the Upper West Side. Um, but the 
you know, so so there is something there, and of course, that's the argument that no country is perfect is exactly the one that they that they want to push all the time, saying, well, you don't complain as you say about China, um, but more and more, you know, I think some some sections of the media are realizing that there is a responsibility there to call out the. Um, the regimes that are explicitly trying to use sports to to launder their images um, in a more in a more direct way. Yeah, and it, it, I mean, you being at the journal, you have I mean, we can call it a luxury of being able to engage with these issues. A lot of people who are covering sports, like they really are limited to covering the the blow by blow accounts, the match results from day to day, and it's it's one thing that drives me crazy about sports coverage is that it's basically all these smart people whose time and, and professions are swept on into public relations. I mean, that's really what a lot of, of sports coverage ends up being. And, and at the, whatever you think about these issues, they need to be engaged with. I mean, we need to be talking about it, what the, what the purpose of these events are. Um, I mean, you're mentioning how, uh, how the global reach of the sport can have positive effects on the country, countries it reaches and, and, and set Blatter's goal to, to, to broaden football's reach even more. Uh, are there, have we seen countries where you know, sports reaching for, or international sports reaching further into that country having positive effects? I mean, that, that's one of the, the underlying goals of the Olympic movement all along. I mean, is, is to, to, to broaden this set of values to more and more people across the world. If you listen to the, what a lot of the a lot of people in these countries will, will say publicly, they'll, like, for instance, I, I, I jotted down this quote from Prince Abdul Aziz in Saudi. He said, the Diria Tennis Cup can inspire new players and new fans in Saudi, male, female, old, or young. Our goal is to have our people engaged in tennis, inspired by tennis, taking part in tennis, and connected as a nation by the sport. And, I mean, I didn't know there were more than a couple dozen tennis players in Saudi Arabia, uh, but, I mean, it, it, is it... Is that is that really happening? Is, is is there is that more than a rounding error in in thinking about the the level of investment they're making in sports? Yeah, it's it's hard to say. I mean, because you know, who are we to say that uh, a ten year old in Saudi uh, won't see these matches and pick up a tennis racket? You know, it's that you know that is possible. Um, I think it's also convenient in many ways um, when you kind of you can't take these things separate from each other that I think that's the real point um, you know and that's kind of the trouble with going and writing blow-by-blow blow accounts of, of what's happening on the field or on the court um, because you do neglect this other side of it and all these things are tangled together um, so if you know if it does inspire some kids to start boxing or start playing tennis you know and, and growing sports culture, sure, that's great. But you know, is the price worth it? Um, which is aiding in in a kind of global PR mission to cover up much graver sins. Um, and you know, in terms of of growing the game, and and they say a lot of the participants often use an excuse, which is we know this country is flawed. We know that there are problems and they often decline to address them specifically um, but they say if we if by going there we can help shine a light on these issues then we've done our part um, sure you know does does is the price of doing that part 60 million dollars 
I don't, I'm not so sure, Anthony Joshua, but um, the there is some there is some kernel of truth in that because would we you know we've spent the better part of a decade now <laughs> talking about Qatar and worker abuse and and conditions go around the stadiums and there has been some progress on that in Qatar but would it have happened if they didn't have the World Cup probably not. Um, you know, there, there wouldn't have been a reason for that level of media scrutiny and maybe indeed, uh, you know, from from uh, organizations like Amnesty International. Um, so in a roundabout way, yes, I think that there is that effect as well of increasing scrutiny and uh, perhaps affecting change. But it's, you know, this can't be the most efficient way to do that. Yeah, it really doesn't seem that way. Um... And there, of course, there's there's a trade-off there. I mean, that that's a good argument and, and an appealing one that players are either making or at least we, we assume they're, that we can infer that they're making by their decisions that they're going to shine a light on the, the local conditions. We're, we're certainly paying more attention to Saudi Arabia this month than sports fans would be otherwise. Uh, but the the flip side i think one historical parallel is apartheid south africa and, and some of the tennis writers who condemned the uh the plan for djokovic and nadal to play in saudi arabia last december they pointed to south africa trying to put on a, a big bjornborg john McEnroe exhibition in 1980 and they were planning on going um arthur ash stepped in and encouraged john McEnroe through his father not to go and it ended up not happening and there were pretty severe sanctions, sporting and otherwise, on South Africa throughout the, the final years of the apartheid era. And it's tough to say whether it worked. I mean, apartheid ended. Um, we, we have a totally different government there now. But what do you think? What, what do you think would happen if the world's top athletes said, "You know, I don't care about this additional sixty million dollars." Uh, it, it's just it, I will not associate my name, or I don't want to associate this sport with what Saudi Arabia does. Uh, I'm skipping it. I mean, what, what's the what happens to Saudi Arabia then? Uh, the, the thing is, they're now involved in so many different sports, and they've diversified so effectively that I don't think any one athlete calling them out and saying I'm skipping this. You know, even if Roger Federer, for instance, last year had said it explicitly that he didn't want to play there, or if Tiger had said, I have a problem with the human rights record, I don't want to go, um, I think they would just move on and find someone else who will. Um, and so that's, that's the tricky part at this point. It would take a really concerted effort. I mean, and you bring up the apartheid example, even when, uh, you know, a sport that South Africa cares a lot about cricket. Even when they were banned from international cricket at that point, there were still international teams prepared to go to South Africa and, you know, flout this this idea that they needed to be uh, held accountable, held to account for apartheid. And you know, it, it was such a terrible look for when, you know there was an England team that went there in '89 uh, on tour, and you know. They decided, well, sports is sports. Uh, we're gonna, we're just gonna talk about that and play cricket. And, and history has not looked on that team kindly. Yeah, that I guess that's the factor that today's athletes aren't really thinking about. Like the, the ones who are making a statement are 
basically doing it for social media and hopefully for their own consciousness, but you don't hear a lot of talk of of burnishing a legacy. I guess uh, now that I say burnishing a leg- legacy, you hear that phrase occasionally, but um, but there's not a lot of focus on that. And, and as you say, you can end up looking pretty bad in retrospect. Um, let's see. Well, I, I'll just add this, that, yeah. you know, there's, there's not a ton of athletes who are prepared to really stake you know, reputational and financial damage uh, on on making a statement about a social issue. I mean, obviously there was Kaepernick who who's become the poster child for that. Um, but we saw during even during the NBA's conflict with China a couple months ago, LeBron came out and said that uh, you know Daryl Morey's tweet supporting the the protesters in Hong Kong might have been misinformed, which is uh, a strange take for someone who was so proactive in terms of arguing for social justice in the United States. And just yesterday, uh, on Friday, I found myself writing about Mesut Ozil, the uh, Turkish-German Arsenal player, who put out a statement calling out China for its treatment of uh, Uyghurs, the Muslim ethnic minority that's being detained, that's in uh, internment camps in, in northwest China. Um, and that, I mean, he was one of the very few voices in global sports to say anything about it because China is such a huge market for athletes that there there can be immediate financial blowback. Yeah, it's it, it, it's interesting that in, in these specific cases, you you do have the potential for for negative effects. I was just thinking in the in the other direction that. Even if if there are individual athletes who are saying no, the the general attitude of global sporting bodies is to always find a way to say yes. Um, I mean, certainly the the ATP and WTA embraced Doha and Dubai from the very beginning. The WTA has massively embraced China. The IOC has been embracing China for a long time, and the IOC is even embracing North Korea as much as it can, um, which which makes me think that when these things are not in the news as in the case of hong kong right now and a few people speaking out about uh, about issues in china um like the the trend is always going to be towards inclusivity regardless of what what countries are up to um i mean it almost seems like it's worse to be a a serial uh, doping offender in the case of russia right now than it is to be doing everything north korea is doing or some of the things that that china is doing in the case of, of global sporting bodies. And, and as we said, the, the arguments at this point are well worn on both sides and every sporting body and every athlete who uh, decides to engage with or, or certainly you know take a check from uh, a human rights abusing country knows which, which playbook to follow. Um, whether it's we want to grow the game, no country is perfect, uh, you know, what about X country, and maybe we can shine a light on this, all while lining our pockets. It's um, you know, the they get repeated a lot. Yeah, the 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 script is there, and increasingly the risks are known. I guess that's that's the that's the bottom line issue for uh, for the athletes is you know if you see. Stan Wawrinka go to Saudi Arabia and, and emerge unscathed, and maybe Djokovic is a little more willing to go next time and, and not worry about it as much. So uh, another recent article you wrote, you were in Qatar for the uh, the Athletics World Championships a couple months ago, I guess that was in October. Um, and 
And I, I love this phrase. You referred to the Qatarification of, of global sporting events. Can you explain what you meant by that? Um, it, well, it, it became kind of a shorthand for everything that, that went into that event. So not just the fact that it's, it's part of a larger global PR campaign, but the fact that when you get there, there is this pervasive weirdness. Um, you know, in October, for instance, it was like walking around a pizza oven. It was so hot. It was like 110 degrees outside. But everywhere I went, I'd bring a jacket with me or a sweater because as soon as you went inside, the, <laughs> the air conditioning was so intense that I thought I was going to get sick. Um, you know, even in the stadium, an outdoor stadium uh, where they had the, the track events was freezing. Um, and you'd see all the athletes too carrying around their track stuff because as soon as they then came, uh, their, their track pants and track suits, because as soon as they came through the mix zone, having just run around, they were freezing and had to bundle up. Um, so it's, it was a, that's one element, you know, this kind of artificial climate control in a stadium that's, um, you know, in a country without much of a, a sporting culture, at least in that sport, there's not a huge amount of track and field uh, going on in Qatar. And the other part is that it's, it's so far out of context that there's not that many fans. There's not a, a kind of organic fan base for it. And so what you end up with is this effectively a soundstage. Um, you know, it's primarily for an international TV audience. And you end up in a place that it doesn't matter where it is or whether there's a culture of, of that sport present. It's you're part of this thing that's produced uh, artificially that exists for a week or two weeks and then goes away. And that was the whole thing. The athletes all fly in. They don't really engage with anything around. They compete. They go. The media does the same thing. Um, and that was it. And there are no fans in the stands. It, it really is deeply strange to experience, especially, you know, uh, mo I spend most of my time around soccer in Europe, which is you can't avoid the passion, you can't avoid the culture because everything is so wrapped together. Um, here, the sport and the show business part has been excised and replicated. Yeah, that it, it's certainly striking watching these events on TV because, yeah, as you point out, the the the, the stadium was often empty at the track and field championships. That article, there's there's a really great um, aerial photo of the uh, of the stadium with virtually and nobody in it. And I think there were plenty of, of, of photos of the Diria Cup, the, the tennis this past weekend, um, that looked similar. You get that a lot with the, the tennis events in Doha and Dubai, as well as the ones in, in China. And I, I guess I, I keep coming back to the same questions. Like, clearly athletes care about having passionate fans. And you know, as you say, soccer players are, are the most blessed in that regard. But I mean, anyone who's at the top of their game in, in a major sport is going to have legions of fans. They're used to playing in front of, of loud, adoring fans. And I mean, do, does it affect them? Does it affect their, their motivation to compete? I mean, their motivation to show up in the first place, to, to know that they're headed to a world championship where no one visibly cares? It depends who you ask. Some of them, they all said, you know, at, at the athletics where they're not getting paid a lavish appearance fee, 
um, you know, and it doesn't really matter where they compete in that respect, whether it's Doha or Eugene, Oregon, they, they would always prefer to have more fans. Um, and some of them said, I don't think any of them got to the point of it affecting their performance, but, um, you know, it, it was not, not a usual circumstance for them. But, um, what I will say about the the Qatarification as well is that, un- unfortunately, this is you know this is not just an isolated event. This is the way international sports is going, and a big reason for that is because it is so it has become so expensive to host major international sporting events that and, and such a you know such a fraught issue, especially in a lot of Western countries about. Well, is this a good way to spend our money? Do we want to put up with the uh, infrastructural nightmare that it can become in some places, and the budget overspend and and all of that? Um, that you know, you've got you've got countries voting against um, applying to or bidding to to host these events. That it's the ones that have vast riches to spend on this kind of thing and vast riches to spend on kind of PR missions that will volunteer to, to host these. Um, and and those are the countries where they can also get things done in a quick way without much scrutiny just by throwing money at problems. Um, so this is going to keep happening. You look at who's, who's hosting the next uh, few major international events. 2022, we've got the Qatar World Cup, but also the uh, Winter Olympics in Beijing. Um, and it's going to keep happening. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the other competitor for that Winter Olympics that's in Beijing was Kazakhstan, which is an, an even more extreme case. Um, and and I think that there's some parallels here. I mean, probably some pretty obvious ones to to what you dug into with the the ownership and the machinations in the English Premier League. So, I mean, it's it's been going on with with major sports franchises for decades, where there's a there's a sort of enterprise value of the team that I mean, if, if you if you look at the accounts and figure out this is the revenue and so on, this is how much it's worth. But then there's there's this sort of luxury good pride value that you know gets rich people to spend an extra couple hundred million dollars so they can say they you know own the New York Mets or whatever, um, and and that's a big factor and that's a factor in some of the in, uh, some of the Premier League ownership that you go into. But but then you have this extra factor where I mean yeah if you have a hedge fund you have a couple of extra hundred billion dollars or hundred million dollars to throw behind buying a team, but if if you're competing against the Saudi royal family, then you're kind of out of your league now. So all of a sudden, there's this, there's this new competition for the this level of prestige. And I mean, so it's it's not just changing it's not just changing the international events, which by by definition are being hosted by countries, but it's it's even changing ownership in national in yeah national leagues like the English Premier League. And we we have seen that with with Sheikh Mansour and from Abu Dhabi is. Has that gone any further in in international football? Um, it's going further all the time. Um, you know, as you say, you look at say Major League Baseball, and by and large, the owners all have the same profile. They're rich guys who made a lot of money or inherited it in the United States, and then buy the team out of some sort of their legacy or as a trophy asset. Um, and in some rare cases, as a, as an investment, but 
investment in sports is rarely smart, um, as as we see all the time uh, when clubs are bought and sold. Um, but the because the Premier League is truly global. Um, there's a whole extra dimension and the group of owners is much more diverse and that's happened really fast. Um, you know, maybe the first of what we call on the book the sugar daddy owners who are prepared to come in and just spend lavishly to win was Roman Abramovich, the Russian oligarch who bought Chelsea in 2003. Um, he wasn't so much looking to improve his image as maybe own an asset outside of Russia. Um, but 2008, when Sheikh Mansour comes in, is really a different animal. Uh, you know, a whole different kind of mission there, where it's yes, a trophy, and even he admitted at the time that he wasn't the biggest football fan. He just suddenly acquired this asset, which was like the Mets to Manchester United's Yankees at that time. Um, the power balance was really skewed in one direction, and he bought it. And suddenly it became this flagship for the royal family of Abu Dhabi in East Manchester, um, where they, they renovated the stadium. As I said before, the name Etihad, the national airline of Abu Dhabi, was everywhere. Um, and it became kind of a, a cheap way to, to advertise the name and to just put out the, the phrase Abu Dhabi in a way that wasn't associated with either human rights abuse or anything else. Suddenly they create a new association with football. And that around that same time, there was a massive investment in a Visit Abu Dhabi tourism campaign in the UK. Um, because part of all of this, of course, is also diversifying the portfolios of oil-rich countries who know that that's a resource that's gonna run out in the coming decades and need to use the wealth they currently have to turn it into different kind of wealth. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting. And I wanted to ask you that specifically with, with Saudi before. You mentioned that they have this Vision 2030 plan so that they're very consciously diversifying and trying to open up to the rest of the world. But in, in, in the case of, of Abu Dhabi and Dubai, there's been a concerted effort to attract tourists that's been pretty successful as far as I know. Um, certainly their image around the world has has not only changed but just become a lot more, um, more well-known. But... It, why now? I mean, five years ago, it was a totally different conversation around Saudi Arabia, and suddenly they're opening up in every direction, diversifying. Um, what's different now? Well, in Saudi, there were there were two things. One is the realization that, as I said, this this is a res oil is a resource that's going to run out, so it's it's quite urgent for them to diversify if they're going to preserve this level of wealth. They're one of the fifteen richest countries on the planet. Um, so this is something they need uh, they need to address. But the second part is, and, and it's related to the first, they're only able to do that first thing because there's been a generational change as well. Um, you look at the Saudi royal family. Um, you know now that the effective man in charge is is MBS, he's understood that, and he's a, a pretty savvy operator in the world. Um, he's understood that you have to change the image. As, as you change the sources of income, and that all of those things are wrapped up together. Um, and the, the social changes that we talked about before uh, are definitely part of that, and, and making developing Saudi into a country that can engage with the rest of the world in a way that it didn't even five years ago. 
Yeah, and yeah, it is it is happening fast. So so one factor we haven't talked about is the the relationship of all of this or the effect of all of this on on Israel and the world and the Jewish population around the world. And this this came to a head briefly in tennis because back in in two thousand nine, I mean, there's been this this big events both men and women in Dubai for fifteen years, I think. And in in two thousand nine, an is Israeli woman named Shahar Pear. Uh, I think she was top 30. She certainly qualified to play this tournament, but she was refused a visa. She couldn't go. And it doesn't really work with this idea of being part of a, an international tennis tour if you deny entry to some of the players who are near the top of that uh, of that group. And it was a, a, a controversy at the time. Um, it was mostly brushed back under the rug and she was, she was allowed in and allowed to play in 2010. I don't think that's been an issue since, but Dubai has also been a little more flexible with Israel and with the Jewish population in general than some of these other Gulf states. I mean, has that come up at all with with Saudi's process of opening up? Not so much lately, um, you know. And and if we talk about the Gulf in general, the around the sporting events in particular, they're around the sporting events in particular, they're becoming more savvy about how to handle that thing, that 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 kind of thing. The um, because it's not just, for instance, visitors from Israel or, or the Jewish population, but for instance, you know, Qatar uh, has had anti-gay laws, um, but they've been very careful about saying, yes, the LGBT population will be welcome to the World Cup and the Club World Cup next week. By the way, we have some things that we'd appreciate if you abided by. They're more cultural than legal. Um, so public displays of affection uh, whether they're same sex or heterosexual, um, you know, are frowned upon. But we're not explicitly saying anyone can't come. Um, and I think that's increasingly the approach. Because one thing that struck me in Saudi, um, and it was true in, in Qatar as well, is that for all the money they're spending on hosting the events, they're quite inexperienced at it. So in Saudi in particular, around the, the prize fight, it was there was really a sense of, this is the first time this is happening, isn't it? Um, so you had volunteers not knowing where to stand. And, you know, not a lot of people, often a lot of people didn't have the answer to basic questions that you might have, like, uh, you know, about Wi-Fi or about where the media room might be, because they just haven't done this before. Um, and that, that was a real kind of stunning thing to see because you go to one of these highly produced events in the United States or in Western Europe and it feels like it's the millionth time they've put this on. So everything runs pretty smoothly. Um, but to come back to your original question, I think as they, these countries gain more experience, they develop uh, scripts for how to address these questions and ultimately figure that the price of upholding whatever principle it may be for the week or two weeks of the event is not worth the negative blowback. Yeah, I mean it seems like that's that's how you'd have to do it. I mean certainly if you're if you're Qatar and you're hosting something at the the scale of of the World Cup or even just the scale of the World Athletics Championships, you you can't uh, you can't exclude anyone with Israeli connections or anyone who is known to be LGBT. Um, Listen, there's there's a non-zero chance that is the Israeli the Israeli national team qualifies for the 22 World Cup. Um, 
you know, which will be a, a quite a situation to see unfold, um, because Qatar really can't do very much at that point. Uh, at the risk of annoying FIFA, because FIFA, once that World Cup starts, FIFA is going to be in charge, uh, and Qatar kind of has to play the game. And that's interesting. That brings us back to what we were talking about before: that there is this, the global sport does have this force of opening things up at least a little bit. I mean, once you hand over the reins of this big thing happening in your country to FIFA, then. Yeah, you don't have as much control anymore, uh, and that's that'll be fascinating to to see how that plays out. Next week, there's going to be um, at the Club World Cup in Doha. There's going to be a fan zone, and there will be alcohol there. Um, oh, wow! Which which was a, a big issue in you know from the time Qatar was awarded the World Cup. The first thing a lot of fans freaked out about was, "Hang on, hang on." Am I going to be able to get a beer if when I go to these games? Because otherwise, I may not be interested in going. I mean, there's a fair number of public events in Norway where you can't necessarily get a beer. Uh, that's a different conversation to get off on. But um, so, so with this experience you've had in the Gulf, I, I, I continue to be interested in the in the fan experience because one of the things that drives the big tennis events is tourism. I mean, a huge percentage of the people who go to Wimbledon or the U.S. Open every year are are tourists from outside the country. Uh, even even now, the Dubai tournament is enough of an institution, and Dubai is enough of a destination that there uh, people will go for the event. If if there's a big prize fight a year from now in in at the, the Diria Arena again, and and a friend of yours says, "Hey, I'm thinking of going to Saudi Arabia to, to watch this fight," do, what do you tell them? <laughs> um, I would just remind them where their uh, where the money they're paying for the ticket is going, um, and. You know, just try to give them the information of, okay, maybe you're a huge boxing fan and this is a great opportunity to see the fighters you want to see, but remember what's going on behind this. Um, I, you know, I can't, I can't tell them not to go, uh, but maybe remind them that this is, there's something larger at play here. Yeah, I think that's a really good note to end on because that, that's a, a big part of the reason why I wanted to have this conversation, put this on my podcast, because I think that's already getting swept under the rug with tennis, even though it's just an off-season exhibition. Um, people are already forgetting about the context that it's in. So, so Josh, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Um, as I said before, Josh is the co-author with Jonathan Clegg of The Club about the English Premier League. He writes for the Wall Street Journal, um, and, and we can look forward to his coverage of, of the football in Qatar next week. Um, so, yes, thanks, everyone, for listening, both for this episode and throughout 2019, and I'll see you next year.